Welcome to Teamwork, A Better Way, the podcast filled with stories, experiences, and insights from leading high-performing team experts. Here are your hosts, Spencer Horn and Christian Napier. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Teamwork, A Better Way. I'm Christian Napier, joined by my amazing co-host, Spencer Horn. Spencer, how are you doing today? Good, good. Full of sugar and icing from last night's cookie party. So oh, man. <laughs> Sounds like I missed out. <laughs> we, did. we made lots and lots and lots of cookies and lots of frosting and sprinkles and decorations. So were you making sugar cookies then? Yeah. So we have a, a annual horn holiday party. I'll try to put some on uh, my story uh, on, on social media, but we, uh, we have tacos and just as many as you know, you can eat. And then uh, we make, my wife makes cookies and everybody has their own trays and boxes. They can carry them home, but we, we decorate them. And yeah. Well, that sounds like amazing fun. And it sounds delicious too. And uh, coincidentally, we had tacos last night as well, but we didn't did. have the, yeah, we didn't have the cookie celebration. So uh, I'll need to put that one on our tradition list. I love that. So uh, this is our final podcast before Christmas, the Christmas break. Uh, super excited to, to, to see you before Christmas. Do you have fun holiday plans scheduled? Yeah, well, uh, to my family's in town. We're all together for the next couple of days. Tonight we're going to the Luminaria and then out to Sushi. And then uh, tomorrow we're going to our, we have a traditional German dinner and, and uh, just we're doing a service project and some other things. So just family party time and time together right now. That sounds good. I could go for a nice schnitzel uh, and uh, some, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, a, that sounds, that sounds really good. Yeah, coincidentally, my, my son-in-law served his mission in Berlin, uh, Germany and uh, his church mission. And so he, he really likes the German food. So when we try to get together, we try to do the German food, uh, if we can, but uh, sounds fantastic. Let's get into our topic though, because we can just sit here and, and talk for hours about little stuff, but we got an exciting topic. <laughs> I saw this in Harvard Business Review as an article that was uh, uh, coming out in the upcoming uh, magazine uh, published just recently. Uh, oh gosh, what was the, the title of the article is called... Um, Leaders must react, a framework for responding to unforeseen events by Nitin Noria. I, I, and I apologize if I butchered the name, but uh, it was quite an interesting article and I yeah. shared it with you and you're like, hey, let's let's go with that for a topic for this week. Uh, and one of the things that I want to start out with, because you, and, and I want to ask you this question, Spencer, because I know you work with so many CEOs, so many executives, and so many companies and verticals, uh, the studies that they did show, and again, it's a pretty limited study, but tracking a, a, a range of Fortune 500 CEOs, yeah, you know, they're 20, 24-7, you know, in 15 minutes, how are they spending their time? And on average, a CEO of a large organization was spending 36% of their time reacting to unforeseen events, uh, which is a significant number. 
And I know there's a lot of variation. The sample size is small. You know, the the minimum I think was like 14%. And there was another CEO had 81% of the time was they felt like they were spent spending in reactive mode. But what are you seeing out there in the work that you are doing with CEOs? And have you seen any trending one way or another? Or has it been pretty constant, you know, ever since you've been, because you've been working with them for decades, it's always been this way where, uh, you know, they're reacting to, spending a significant amount of their day reacting to unforeseen events. You know, it, it's a good question, Christian. And in my experience, it varies all across the board. It varies by, you know, what stage of business is in, you know, in terms of the, the growth curve and how much cash they have on hand and how much impact outside events have on the business. It also matters the, the temperament of the CEO. Are they able to, uh, to let go? Are they able to, to kind of categorize the, the challenges and the, the impacts of, of external and internal events so all of those things are are extremely different are, are they going through a, a merger or acquisition are they every company is in, in a different stage of of progression and different needs and so i i see all over the board I, there are times when i see leaders that are much more than 36 percent in that uh, reactive mode um and i think sometimes maybe maybe less you know when i when I was uh, really reading this, I, I thought a lot of the the Stephen Covey book, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, and he introduced that. At the time, I thought it was you know Stephen Covey's brilliance, but it was really the Eisenhower quadrant, right? And and that's something I talk a lot of, of with with CEOs. Are you in the quadrant that most people seem or they feel? Uh, uh, the, the answer is, if you ask a CEO anecdotally, most of them may feel like they're more than 36% in reactionary mode or what we call focused on important and urgent. seems like that, that urgent and important takes uh, so much of our time. So my answer is um, it varies. And of course, when there are major events like we had with the you know, COVID uh, situation in, in 2020, um, also the, the outbreak of, of the Ukraine-Russia war, and in some cases, even the the regional conflict there with uh, with Israel and 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 ha, you know Hamas, businesses can can be uh, affected. Supply chains are being disrupted because of that that war. You know, supply chain through the the Red Sea is now disrupted, and and that's impacting a lot of businesses. So it's interesting. Uh, these types of things can can really make uh, a, a huge impact that can either make or break a CEO. One of the questions that I have uh, when thinking about this topic is, and, and it's not discussed too much in this article, but, but uh, we know, we recognize that there are going to be things that we cannot predict because the world just, there are too many variables in the system, so you cannot predict everything. Uh, but, uh, you know, I would say most mid to large size companies, I mean, they have, you know, enterprise risk management capabilities, usually in house, they do a lot of risk, uh, planning. They do a lot of risk mitigation, uh, uh, planning, and you're looking at various contingencies. And so, 
you know, so, sometimes on the surface, when I look at some of these things and I think, and I see, I hear a CEO is spending 81% of his time or her time reacting to unforeseen events. I'm like, well, how's that possible? Hold on here. Like, how's this possible? I mean, you, right. don't you have folks in your organization and it's their job to, to look at these unforeseen effects. You know, I, I come from an Olympic environment, you know, major sport event environment, risk mitigation is a huge thing. And, uh, you know, it usually the, the, the big ones are in three buckets, right? One is uh, natural disasters, two are the epidemic, you know, these kind of things. And then three are, uh, you know, the Public security safety. threat, yeah. the, the, the acts of terrorism or, or a war or those kind of things. And, and so even though, uh, you know, we didn't foresee COVID happening, I know that they had, you know, strategic planning sessions and tabletop exercises where people are discussing what happens if we have an outbreak of this. You know, what is the process that we follow? Now, with COVID, it became even more extreme because they had to postpone the whole thing by a year. I'm taking a long time to answer this question. I'm just making a bit of commentary, I guess. But, you know, why are why do we have so many unforeseen events, particularly for Fortune 500 or global organizations that have teams that are dedicated to planning for contingencies? It's a very good question, and I think that, you know, it's, if you think about just what happened in 2020, when was the last great pandemic? What was that, 1918? I mean, a hundred years ago. And and so circumstances are different. You know, a lot of times we think, well, you know, we'll be able to handle it, or things will be different now, or it's not going to impact us, or... I remember you and I, when we got, we started our podcast, we were saying things like this will end. And uh, of course we were right about that, but when it would end, we were completely wrong about. <laughs> and, and so the, 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 the CEO and the leader's ability to react. So let, <clears throat> let's just take that for example. Hey, we think this is going to be over in three, four months. Um, we get to six months and we realize, uh-oh, that's wrong. So how do you react? How quickly do you react? Are you constantly reacting? You know, you may make a, a new plan based on this This crisis is going to last for three, four months. And then very quickly, you have to be able to extend those those plans and, and adapt. And, and some CEOs did very well at that. Others didn't. They, you know, and, and so I don't know the answer. I think... Um, it, it's going to be situational. Some businesses were were uh, impacted more acutely than than others, and so sometimes that's the luck of the draw. I mean, what do you think, Christian? I mean, what I mean, you have with all of your experience. What do you think? You're asking me, and I know you you work with lots of executives, and you're talking in, in these circles where you're planning for these for these three areas of risk mitigation. Well. I think a lot of it comes down to the information inputs that the CEO gets. Uh, and we talked a lot, a, a little tiny bit about this before we went on air. Uh, looking, You mentioned the Eisenhower matrix and yeah. the, the author of the article proposes a similar matrix, a similar tool called the reactive management framework, putting things on an axis of 
how it looks right now and what it might look like over time, right? So those are the two axes and you have these different quadrants, which is, yeah. well, if it's, if it doesn't look like it's a big thing now and we don't think it's going to be big over time, then don't worry about it. You know, if it appears really big now, but it will diminish over time, then there's another strategy for that. And they call that the siren song quadrant. And then there's the whisper warning quadrant, which is, it looks like it's small now, but could turn into something big in the future. And then there's the clarion call, which is where the CEOs are spending 36% of their time, right? Because they see it, they see it as uh, it's big and it could be significant over the long run. So I need to address this right now. Right. And uh, you got to be all in on all uh, on, on these four things. So, you know, one of the questions that I have was, well, how do you make this determination about what goes into what quadrant, right? Because, because uh, you may not have all the inputs that you need in order to make that, that determination, or those inputs could be feeding you biased information. I'll give you a funny example. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so uh, when it comes to uh, to bidding for major sport events, the event owners, depending on the organization, they may ask the the entity that is bidding, where it's a city or a country, whatever, to do a risk assessment during the bid, right? So they'll look at those things like natural disasters, uh, the risk of uh, uh, a terrorist attack, whether it's a you know a physical attack or it's a cyber attack or those kind of things so there, there's and, and the environmental risks and, and and so on and so forth and you know typically what you would do is you would identify these and then you would give uh, uh, a rating of them in terms of their impact and probability right so in this particular example i'm not going to name the city but you know this this assessment gets with all of you know it gets sent out to all these different entities you know so security forces and, you know, uh, leaders in the community and so on and so forth. And I remember getting uh, the risk assessment back, you know, the because people were like populating spreadsheets and they would say, okay, well, I think the risk is this. Well, what would happen is, is every one of these folks who are reporting risks are reporting them as high impact risks because they are high of impact responsibility, to them. Right? Right, but they're not necessarily high impact to For the global. entire organization yes. or to the country. <laughs> so what happens is you get a bunch of people that are in their own little sphere that feel like they are having an existential crisis. I remember in one specific example, you know, something being identified as super high impact, and the item that it was was, will we be able to get solar panels installed on the roof of the athlete village? Well, for this person who's the environment person, he thought that was a high impact thing. But come on, you know, when you're talking about are you going to be able to pull this event off or not, in the grand scheming things, being able to have solar panels on the roof of the village is not a high risk. It's not in the clarion call quadrant here. It's in the normal noise. Don't get involved. That's not. But but what happens, you get a bunch of people. Your, who are your direct reports or people, you know, and they are all raising fire alarms. Like we got problems. And, 
And it takes, I think, a CEO that has perspective to be able to say, well, you know what? Actually, this thing, not that big a deal. I don't know. What do you think? I think you're exactly right. And just the ability to not react to the emotion. What you're describing is what's called the fog of war. And um, right, the, the idea of the fog of war is you are at, at a point on the battlefield and you're getting attacked and you may be losing. And so you think you're losing the war. And it just means that, you know, maybe at, at your spot, there's a there, there's extra resistance, but all other fronts are moving ahead and, and doing well. And so you retreat and that can actually cause the, the you know, the turning of the of the tides for the success of, of the entire army when you don't see how you fit into the bigger scheme and how everything else is, is going. So um, <laughs> there's there's just wanted you to say, Joey, uh, great to see you. <laughs> thanks, thanks, for, uh, thanks, thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks for tuning in. Right. And, and so that's that's a challenge that the leader has is to be able to frame the situation. And, and so a, a big part of, of the job of the CEO is to be able to understand the big picture, but also be able to tell that story and, and to educate people that, you know, there are times when you've got to get out of that silo and, and go to different places and, you know, on the, on the front and the battle so you can see what's really going on. That's hard to do. But being able to to uh, to, be, to be able to tell that story is important. You know, it's interesting when when the um, when Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, the article I, I, I've been talking about this as we all have for for a long time. When when that happened, my my initial feeling was this is World War Two all over again. This is this is World War Three happening just the way World War to happen and this could really escalate to a major conflagration and um that still that still may happen but i think you need to you need to consider those 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 you know those possibilities and in a way it is almost a world war i mean it's like we have axis and and allies <laughs> we've got the world divided in their support for for these countries and it's not turned into a hot war for everybody, but it is definitely uh, has, you know, has risk. And for organizations that had businesses and headquarters or, or offices or franchises in Russia, huge impact. And how do you know, how did you size that? And how did you uh, uh, address the, you know, the, 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 the risk there, you had to be able to react very, very quickly. There's still some businesses that are, that are there and they've taken big hits. They've, you know, uh, they've been, some of their businesses have actually been nationalized or it's a, it's an interesting time right now. And so getting this right, I think is, is important, but you have highlighted one of the skills that a CEO needs to have. And that is not to get sucked into every discussion that comes with emotion and energy. And make sure that you're looking at the big picture and not just one little crisis that is maybe exaggerated. I think that's a great point. And Spencer, one of the questions that I have for you, uh, you know, most of the, the, the 
examples that are cited in the article are are with very large, very well-known companies, and the examples are are public knowledge, or even country. Um, you know, we're talking about Jimmy Carter that, versus that's right, or even or or right. even or even countries, and and um, you know, many of the examples that are cited, uh, they they talk about something that where the 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 reaction of the company may not have been the right reaction and and may have actually inflamed the situation made it worse you know so you know something that could have been uh, a whisper warning because of the strategy deployed by the organization to quote unquote nip that thing in the bud being the wrong strategy it ends up being a much bigger issue than it should have been. Otherwise, I'm curious, you know, in your experience, uh, it, you know, not naming names or anything, but have you had experiences with organizations where, you know, there something came up, they decided on a strategy, we're going to attack it like this, ended up being totally the wrong strategy which created a much huger problem than if they would have taken a different tack the answer is yes um and i you know it's it's interesting i mean you you have to make decisions i mean hundreds of decisions every day i mean that could be as small as who to hire who, who to who to release out into the world and, and get, you know, get out of your company. And the, I mean, those may seem like small things, but the strategies, for example, of do we, do we make an acquisition right now? Do we, do we buy this piece of equipment? Um, how do we, uh, how do we invest our, our, our money? Do we extend ourselves and take advantage of, you know, a certain opportunities and what risk does that bring in terms of how does that impact our labor force, our team, to be able to stretch their just their capabilities until we are able to get the cash flow to cover and hire more people. I mean, there's there's so many decisions that that have to be looked at, especially for you know companies that most of our listeners may be familiar with. Maybe you work at that. You know, we're we're talking twenty million, you know, hundred million, or even five million dollar a year companies the the impacts of our of our decisions and the challenges that our, our our markets and businesses face are i think amplified magnified so i have seen that for you know for example just making um a, a non-decision to address a, a, a leader within the organization's bad behavior and how that can lead everything so much of, of success is momentum and energy. And if you see, <clears throat> if you ignore a problem, it can carry the organization in a negative momentum direction that can spread to employees. And I mean, think of sports, for example, if you got a, a, a winning team and the, and the perspective is maybe you had a down year, uh, you know, they recruit some, some hotshot players. Well, all of a sudden you lose a bunch, bunch of people to the transfer portal or to, you know, exiting early to the NFL, it can have the impression like, oh my gosh, we're imploding. How are we going to, you know, how are we going to win our next game? And that can cause people to actually say, I got to jump ship now. I got to get off this. This is, this is going to lose and it's going to taint my, 
um, my reputation. And so you, you see that momentum and, and this, that, that can lead to, that's that fog of war, can lead to lo- losses that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So how do you manage that in a way that says, listen, this is, this is all normal. This is exactly what's happening. If you think about the, the Tuckman's theory of organizational change, right? You got the forming, storming, norming, performing, all of that. One of the most challenging stages of any organization is that storming phase. It is uncomfortable. It is people are, are struggling to figure out where they fit and make a name for themselves and pushing back against, you know, rules and regulations and having, you know, what power and authority and what, what's the structure, where do I fit in? And that there, there's a lot of chaos. If the, the employees feel like this is the culture that's going to persist in the organization, that can be very detrimental to the, the, the future success of the, of the team. But a, a great leader can say, listen, this is all normal. We're figuring it out. We're going to figure it out, and we will get through this, and things are going to be great. Sure, we lost somebody to the transfer portal. Sure, we, you know, we, we have to work temporarily right now extra hours because of this, this merger that we've done or we, this new product that we're implementing. But it's, this is going to make it easier for us. There's going to be greater opportunities, growth for you. So being able to tell that story that you will succeed, we will succeed, and all will be well. All right. So I love that you brought up the transfer portal because <laughs> uh, it highlights another thing that we talked about a little bit before we came on air. And you brought this point up, which is such an important point is you have to be flexible, you have to be adaptable. Okay. So in the US, in college sports, you didn't really have this thing called transfer portal. Thanks for clarifying for the rest of the world. But but due to uh, you know some changes in litigation and, and or, or regulations and so on and so forth, where players uh, or, or student athletes, athletes in college were not al- allowed to earn income from their participation in a sport and then the regulations changed so that they could earn income from their name image and likeness and also at that time they came up with this idea of the transfer portal if you weren't happy with the situation where you had a certain university you could transfer to another university what does this have to do with flexibility and adaptability well a lot of coaches we're out there saying, well, shoot, we have a new landscape. How are we going to adapt to these new rules and regulations? And some were able to make that adaptation quickly, and there are others, and the most famous of whom is the coach of Clemson, Dabo Sweeney, who says, well, we would prefer not to use the transfer portal and develop our own players. Well, that's great, but what happens when your own players leave? What are you going to do? You know, and as a result, they're their performance on the field has suffered because they have been slow to flexible and adapt to this change. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what you're seeing with CEOs, executives out there, where we have seen a lot of changes in the landscape from COVID to uh, then then we had uh, uh, the, what was it called? The, the, the great resignation to quiet quitting to, yeah, you know, all these tech layoffs and, and it's just been, and then although Ukraine, there's, there's, we seem to be bombarded with these unforeseen events. How are you seeing people being flexible and adaptable 
to be able to be nimble and address these uh, unforeseen situations quickly and effectively. I'm, I, you know, I'm seeing both. I, I, I see leaders that are doing a, a great job, and I mean, from I have a, a limited perspective. Obviously, I don't. With the clients that I work with, they have this attitude that they want to invest in their people, and part of that perspective is if we invest in our people, we're going to make a better experience for all of the employees. One of the, the, the greatest areas that any uh, organization can focus on is middle management to, uh, to really have a positive impact on the overall culture of the organization because they're the ones that you know, got promoted because they did a great job, but they don't have a lot of leadership experience. And that can be a real source of, of, of pain and frustration. I, I, uh, HubSpot is you know, a, a company that's a tech company in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts that you know, is uh, probably close to, I don't know, uh, they're, you know, they're a big company now and they, they recruit from Harvard, MIT, all the smartest kids. But they would do quarterly employee reviews, and they got slammed with their with their uh, uh, culture. Even though they had all this, you know, great environment and all the services and food and and just uh, just a great place to work. The problem was is everyone they were promoting were so young and inexperienced. They were creating a, a terrible experience for the employees. And so those leaders that would say, "Hey, we've got to invest in our people." fast right now so that we can make sure that they're you know creating the environment we need and they're and they're representing us as the leadership team the way that they should some leaders get that and and some don't and so that's what I'm brought into a lot of the time Christian is to help change the the skill level of those leaders so that they can reduce the dysfunction between themselves and and those that are on their teams you have the great resignation happen because so many organizations are dysfunctional. Only 12% of teams worldwide are high performing. So this is a big area of, of, of frustration. People are like, hey, if I can make an extra dollar an hour over here, I'm going to leave. Why? Because I'm not happy here. But if there is a culture that is strong enough that I know people care about me and invest in me, I'm connected to that culture. So whether there's a, a, a crisis, a, a challenge, uh, I have to work extra hard right now because of, a, a, you know, COVID uh, has shown up. And so I need to work 60 hours instead of my normal 40 hours. I'm all in. I'm not going to look for the next transfer portal opportunity. I'm going to stay put because I know that they care about me. I am working with my team. And, and so for me, the best leaders are recognizing that it's not the company that they're working for; it's you. Yes, they they first they, they got attracted to the brand, you know, Southwest Air. Hey, I want to work there; it's a great company. Or I want to work at KPMG, or you know, I want to have Goldman Sachs on my resume. That may be the initial thing, but when they get in there and they find that it's not as good as they'd hoped, or maybe they find that it's better, it's all because of the people that they get in there with. And so that's what I see. I, did I answer your question? Yeah, so it really comes down to people. And that's one of the challenges, right? Because oftentimes uh, when you have unforeseen events that have material financial impact on an organization, 
sometimes the first thing to go is this budget that invests in the people, right? So you may be redu you're re you're reducing uh, your workforce potentially, but also you're not investing as much in the people who are remaining because you got other places you need to put the money, you know, to keep the the business viable. And so you create this like vicious circle where uh, you're not investing in people, so they're not performing. So the business is not performing as well as it should. And because of the reduced revenues, you end up cutting people and reducing your investment in people. And it just goes and goes and goes. And then before you know it, you, you wonder what, and you wonder what just happened. That, that actually happened to me when I was, uh, in 2008, I was recruited to work for a, a company, a leadership training and development company. And that's right when the recession happened in, in 2008. So I, st I started working there in March of 2008. And by a couple months later, our revenues were cut in half. It was one of the very first expenses that companies eliminated because of, you know, just fiscal responsibility, if, if that's what you want to call it. It's interesting, though, that those companies that continued to invest in their people were incredibly poised to take advantage of the economy when it turned around. Their people were all, were were ready to go. They were energized. They had, you know, when things are going well, it's like, wait, we don't have enough time. We need all the time. We can't train our people. When things are going poorly, well, we, we don't have enough money. So this is this is the problem that you have invest in good people and they will help you to minimize the time that you spend in unimportant, you know, but urgent activities or urgent and important fires that that you need to you need the help of your team. That's that that you know that clarion call you need people to be able to to brainstorm with to to really come up with lots of different strategies, not just one or two, but multiple strategies that you can adapt as as needed. So the, the, the key is always people. Because your strategy is going to change, Christian, and where those strategies come from. <laughs> yeah, they come from people. Right. Absolutely right. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on that was mentioned in the article uh, was a three-step process introduced by the author uh, to execute in this framework. And those steps were sensing, sizing, and responding. And I know we've touched on it, you know, throughout our conversation today, uh, uh, things to do, not do when it comes to sensing and sizing. Uh I'm I'm curious your your perspective on responding. Uh, the, the way I want to frame it is like this: uh, responses can be motivated by uh, emotions as well as facts, right? Yeah. And and sometimes they can be motivated by fear. It could be uh, fear of consumer behavior reacting negatively. It could be fear of lawsuits filed by uh your customers you know for doing this or doing that it could be fear of uh shareholders uh, reacting negatively to the way you respond to a situation and 
So I'm curious in your work with CEOs and leaders, how do you address this fear so that people can take rational responses to unforeseen events and not overreact or react inappropriately because they are operating in fear? You know, are we going to get sued? Are the shareholders going to revolt? You know, are we going to lose clients? You know, and it becomes a very fear-driven thing. So what's what's been your experience, Spencer, in working with CEOs and uh, helping them, you know, behave and work and make decisions rationally and not be overcome by fear? You know, I've, I've spoken uh, many times about Kelvin. You know, he was the CEO of two publicly traded companies. And I remember we had a crisis in one of the companies. I was the vice president of this company. Again, I had, I had um, corporate responsibilities. It was a publicly traded company. I was a young man with, uh, I don't know that I really understood all the risk that, that it involved being that, that public officer. But sometimes the, the shareholders would, um, would, would raise an alarm and, and be frustrated and they would, you know, shout out. And so... Kelvin was really good at, at keeping his pulse on the finger of, of the shareholders. Now, if all the shareholders are saying one thing, that's something to listen to. But if you've got some talking about a problem and others not, then you've got to be able to, to be able to keep your head and to be able to uh, stay calm and be able to articulate a position that is uh, helping to win over those who who may be opposed to to your position and that again it comes back to the idea of energy if you're fearful that will impact all of your your policies all of your strategies all of your reactions Um, and and so you have to be able to be that leader that creates a, a you know a calm if you if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, you know who knew that Vladimir Zelensky would be so so great at responding to the crises that he has every day. As a you know former entertainer, nobody thought he was up to the task. One of the things that he's doing, he's managing optics, how people uh, are feeling like they're doing, whether they're having success or not. Trying not when they have you know great success, not to, hey listen, don't get overexcited when they're having not as much success. Hey, this is normal, right? Uh, if somebody's uh, really not all in on the on the on the strategy, he's replacing them, whether you agree with that or not. But he's not panicking, and he is showing courage, and and that's what what you need to do. You've got to be able to set the stage of how you want your people to behave by not reacting with panic or fear. And if you feel that panic or fear, find someone outside of the organization that you can have that release with so that when you've done with that therapy, you come back to your people strengthened and clear about what it is you want to do. You have to speak in a clear tone. You think of, I think of Winston Churchill. He was a great leader in a crisis, not so great outside of a crisis, but with a crisis, he was in, in dire circumstances, but he always spoke with, hey, we've had some terrible losses. We acknowledge that but we will prevail. We will fight them in the streets, in the alleys. And he just had that courage 
to say things as they were and as they needed to be with confidence. So does that help? Yeah, I mean, uh, we we now have a, a a word to describe that kind of leadership, Churchillian, right? Like we Churchillian we, leadership. We, 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 we that's how we describe that kind of leadership. You know, thinking in a in a. By the way, folks, context. this is completely. This is even though we're talking about this article, this is completely unscripted. So we're just. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, thinking of uh, of an example on the corporate side that was high profile just happened. Uh, in the in in you know in the in the last few weeks, the unexpected ouster of the CEO of OpenAI, right? Sam Altman. The board takes a vote; they kick him out, <laughs> and and it's like total chaos. But you know, I I got to give props to the CEO of Microsoft, right? Who this situation is happening, and what does he do? He takes decisive action right away and says, "Okay." So Sam, folks, you're going to come over here to Microsoft. We're going to create this new division and we're going to make this thing happen, right? Like he, he, he didn't wait for, uh, you know, days and weeks and months, you know, to see, well, you know, how's this all going to play out? Uh, he got enough information where he could make a decision and then he acted. And I think there's something to be said about that where, uh, you know, people go in and they and they're they're not timid about it. And okay, we got a serious situation. This is the Clarion call. I mean, this was a definitely a Clarion call situation for OpenAI and for Microsoft, who is the largest. I think they're the single largest investor in OpenAI. You know, having pumped billions of dollars into this thing. And he's like, okay, we're making a move, and this is what we're going to do. You know, and and. Uh, I find that inspiring, whether it's right or I don't know, but because I'm not close to the situation, I don't understand everything, all the intricacies of everything here. But it was really, it was great to see a leader step in within 24 hours and say, okay, this is what we're doing. Here we go. You know, and uh, that calmed a lot of people's fears. Uh, It also, you know, got... OpenAI to kind of rethink how they were doing things and so on and so forth because he was willing to take such uh, decisive action so quickly. Yeah. I don't know what your thought is on, on that. Oh, I, I, I think that's fascinating, and I, I agree. I mean, it was like the the board actually backtracked, and they're like, well, maybe we made a mistake because of the confidence and and decisiveness, or just the you know what what had. Um, uh, again, sorry for all the military references. Uh, general Patton, U.S. Uh, World War II general, said uh, a, a good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan next week. Right, and so part of this this approach that we're taking is is have a violent plan that you execute right away, even if it's not perfect, because you'll probably pivot again next week and. Um, and, and, and being able to do that with with confidence is a sign of, a, I think, a great leader. I, yeah. I'm curious. We're not advocating <laughs> violence here or anything like this, uh, but we're using it in the in the term violently of, hey, applying your your strategy. <laughs> that yeah, means so, urgency you know, and enthu- energy. Uh, yeah, enthusiastically and wholeheartedly going for it rather than just timidly dipping your toe in the water to see what the temperature is. Yeah, and then you know, and then you know, asking. 500,000 other people, you know, what they think about this, that, or the other. 
you know, going just take action, do it. So I think it's so, you, uh, so you've asked me a lot of questions. Now let me ask you a question. You and I talked about maybe a little more of a controversial situation with with the Bud Light uh, scenario, right? And I'm really curious as to how you perceive they uh, they they rolled out a marketing plan that was not well received. I'm just curious as to what you saw in terms of leadership, how they responded. Was this a clarion call or was it a whisper warning? Uh, it could have been a whisper warning or a siren song, uh, but the reaction was life. definitely more clarion call. You know, it's it's been interesting uh, because, and, and I'm not saying any of this to, to say I take position on one side right. or the other not of the argument you here. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just taking a look at it because there, there, there are, there are some, there, there are some uh, pre other precedents uh, in the corporate world uh, for this, where someone has, or an event has happened or some action was taken and you thought it was going to be a huge thing at the time, but it turned out at least from a business sense to not be that big. Right. So uh, the thing that I'm thinking about that I think is relevant to the Bud Light situation is Chick-fil-A, right? So Chick-fil-A for, for uh, those of you here in the U S or are you are familiar with the story of Chick-fil-A uh, you know, it is, it was founded by and is run by a family that is uh Christian centered values uh, family. And, and so they, they're, they're not open on Sundays. You can't go there and, and buy a sandwich and so on and so forth. Well, uh, here in the States uh, with the advancement of, of uh, gay rights and, and same sex marriage and all this kind of stuff uh, you know, organizations like Chick-fil-A who were you know running their business based on these quote unquote traditional Christian values uh, came under fire for some of their policies and so there were active boycotts you know of Chick Fil A you can't go here and eat and you know what everybody has seen over time is that you know it was all over the news it was making headlines everywhere but then it blows over is Chick Fil A suffering today? No, because of the the values they espoused and the boycotts that were organized. And again, I'm not taking I'm not taking a position. No, on I, think, I, I right think that's wrong. a great comparative uh, analogy, really. But I mean, Chick-fil-A is killing it here. You know, in Fort Union, five minutes from my house is a Chick-fil-A. It doesn't matter any time of day I drive by there. There's a line of cars, like 15 cars long, trying to buy a sandwich Chick-fil-A. You know, uh, they're doing just fine. And. And so it's it's hard, I think, for businesses, and this is the responding part of this, you know, three-level thing, sensing, sizing, responding, to, to know, like, how should I react to this certain situation? Because you can't over, overreact to these things. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I think for people who are seasoned business professionals, sometimes they can look at this and say, you know what, it's big right now, but it will blow over. And so we're just going to, uh, you know, take these uh, precise uh, corrective actions if needed to address the situation. But we're not going to, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to overreact to this. And 
and I, I, the, I see that happen to Chick Fil A, you know, with Chick Fil A, and and that's right. and and you know, they turned out to be just fine. They, they the didn't problems suffer are really exacerbated anything. today because the news media picks some of these stories up and really accelerates the pressure because you know we're we're adding a cultural element in our society here. I don't know how polarized I, I feel like you know this country is is polarized in terms of you know, culture and, and politics and, and all these things that we're talking about. And it bleeds over into business. And so leaders have to be able to address that because they're getting pressure and it, it, it can it can kill the business. Chick-fil-A, you know, withstood that, you know, Bud Light's going to be, uh, they're going to be okay. But they certainly lost their, their position in the marketplace in the short term. And, um, and I think that at the time, people that were talking on behalf of the organization were saying, this is a clarion call. And you're saying it was probably more of a, a, a whisper warning and, and they needed to not overreact. Or it was a, you know, it was a siren song, which is, yeah. it sounds oh, yes, yes, really yes. big now, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to be a huge right. issue in the long run. That's right. But it's tricky, right? Because uh, you, it's hard to know in the moment whether it's going to be a big issue long term or not, you know, because you just see the crisis that's in front of you. And so it becomes this clarion call. The risk is, is that you overreact and then you cause more damage than you should because of the way you reacted to this, to this situation. And, and like I said, with the Chick-fil-A thing, um, it, it was big in the media. It was like 10 years ago or so, you know, maybe a little bit longer than that, where it was a huge issue. Um, for a few months and then you know people went on to the next you know the general population kind of went on to the next crisis right and and so you know you have to make that judgment call i think as a ceo and as a board to say okay is this one of these things that's going to it's going to lose momentum once another crisis appears and everybody's going to run over and see the train wreck that's happened over in this other area right. and they're just going to forget about what's going on over here with you you know you're just the you're just the crisis of the moment for the general population. So Christian, why don't we talk about what actions a CEO should take based on which of these four quadrants they find themselves in. If you've sized the problem, if you've looked at where you are, uh, in terms of you know these these three these three steps, how you respond. I mean, what what is what is the appropriate um, reaction? And so let's let's just talk about that briefly, shall we? Let's do it. So think about the normal noise, right? These are small issues that are likely to to remain small. So if you're a CEO, don't get personally involved in those routine matters. Let let your let your team, let your organization handle those, right? I mean, if, if, if something's going on with your team, if there's, a, if, if there's an employee that wants to enter the transfer portal or, or they're frustrated by, you know, the, the, the commission structure or whatever, they feel like it's unfair, <laughs> um, let, your, let your key people handle that. Let your HR departments manage that. However, you don't want to ignore those, right? I mean... If, for example, if there's a if there's a an employee issue, you need to be checking Glassdoor to to see you know what kinds of as people leave your organization, what are they saying? What's 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 getting out to the public? 
So trust your team at the same time, verify that, that they're handling it the right way. And you can do that in your, you know, in your accountability meetings, just ask for updates, let them handle it, but keep your finger on the pulse, so to speak. What would you add to that? I think that's a great idea. And what I would say uh, to that specific example is, and, and I think you alluded to it when what you were saying is, is there a trend here, right? right. So it yeah. could be, I lost my, I, okay, my, my chief technology officer left for another opportunity. And maybe that's a one-off, or it could be that, you know, uh, I'm Apple and, and Joni Ivy leaves, you know, my, my head designer. Uh, maybe that's a one-off thing. But if I start to see a broader exodus of talent, so I got a lot of people entering into that quote-unquote transfer portal, you know, then that could be the whisper warning, right? Yes, so, exactly. so it then transitions from a normal noise thing to a whisper warning thing, which is, okay, let's take some action now and nip this thing in the bud so it doesn't become a clarion call issue later when 50% of my people are gone, you know? Right. <laughs> you know so can we identify a trend relatively early on uh, so that uh, you know, something that, that could be a massive issue, we've gone ahead and we've taken some proactive steps and we've right. nipped it in the bud. And that's the, that, that, that nip in the bud strategy is, you know, that's really what, what Covey talked about being in the, 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 the preventative uh, uh, quadrant. So it, it's, it's, it's important, but it's not urgent yet, but we're seeing a trend moving that way. So you want to do what Kelvin, my mentor always said, he's called it anticipatory management, right? Think about what's going to happen. And, and start to uh, plan for that right now so that it doesn't become a, a, a crisis. So that's, that's, that's preventative in, in nature. Um, let's save the clarion call for last. Let's then go to you know, the siren song. It's, you have significant issues, but they're likely to diminish over time. How do you handle that as a leader? That's a really good question because sometimes it's not, and we've, you know, we're kind of, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but sometimes it's not clear right, to, to you, whether it's going to be a short-term issue or it's going to Therefore, be Therefore, what should you do if it's trend. not clear? Well, if you can find clarity, you know, if, if there is, if there is, uh, you know, if you can go find some additional information inputs to help clarify, you know, I think that's helpful, you know, because often it, it, to simplify things, as you mentioned, this all comes down to people, right? So, yes, yep. so uh, in our own families, sometimes the kid that's the loudest, that complains the most or whatever may end up getting more attention because the kid is just talking all the time. Whereas, you know, the, the, the quiet one that's sitting over in the corner is not making any fuss, you know, ends up being ignored because we're just, we're spending all of our energy trying to take care of the one who's demanding all of our time. And, and as you mentioned with media, right, media, whether it's traditional media or social media, can be amplifying a minority of voices very loudly, you know. So, so if you are a CEO and you get involved in that situation, what does that message send to everybody, including your employees? Well, I guess it depends on the situation, right? But uh, <laughs> but it, it says that this is a this is an important situation, and it may not be. Oh yes, yes, 
right? So if you get involved as the CEO, instead of waiting and watching and just keeping an even keel or maintaining, you know, as the article says, equanimity, right? Let let your team handle it. Very similar to the the uh, you know whisper warnings is is if you get involved, you're actually sending the message that you're escalating this, and it's more important than it actually is. It's okay to, to just say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. Let it go. Um, and then just resist unnecessary involvement is really, because actually you could escalate the situation by your involvement. Yeah, especially if you say the wrong things, right? So, so <laughs> what are some great examples of this today? What have we seen with university presidents hauled in front of Congress to I talk about Israel had that. I had that on my notes. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> that was exactly right? what I was thinking. Yes. Who, who, you know, the, and this is not to diminish the seriousness of what is going on in the Middle East, because it is incredibly serious what's going on there. And, uh, you know the anti-Semitism that is happening here is also a various thing as a uh, very serious thing as well. So I think it was appropriate for presidents of universities to address this situation. But what happened was, is you have people advising these presidents, basically saying, "You're in a tricky situation. You got to walk a fine line," and they just ended up messing it up completely. Right? They just screw they 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 ended up turning what could have been a siren song into a clarion call and really inflamed the situation made it a lot worse because they just handled it so so inappropriately so it's hard in a position of a ceo or somebody they, they in a turned position it into of a clarion call but they the, actually the public is demanding where where you know public yeah. is demanding you need to come up and say something because this is a this is a tremendously serious issue and so you're kind of in a, a difficult situation because if you step back and you don't do anything, you don't say anything, then you're signaling to the masses that they don't matter. And they. It, and at the same time, if you do tackle it head on and you say, okay, I'm going to address this situation and you do it wrong because you are taking advice from attorneys instead of your PR folks or vice versa, you know, <laughs> or you're not even listening to your gut. Then you just make it 10 times worse. And that's what happened. I, I wonder what would have happened. So, I, I mean, I talked to my son-in-law about this, who had two degrees from Harvard. So we had the presidents of, of uh, Penn, uh, MIT, and Harvard uh, testify in front of Congress, right, about basically anti-Semitism and uh, threats to both Muslims and, and, and uh, Jews on, on their campuses. And people feeling feeling unsafe, and I and I just asked my son-in-law about this. He says, "You know, this uh, they they made it about free speech." He says, "There has not been free speech on these campuses decades. You know, pr uh, professors and presidents have been fired, even presidents who said something that was true, but or just asked, hey, we should consider this issue on.'" You know, uh, for example, you know, the, the there was a someone was fired for saying, are there biological differences between men and women about how which which uh, um, which careers they're they're drawn to? And just by asking that question, that individual was fired. 
even you know you talk about freedom of speech is is what president gay said that that's why they allowed the, you know all these these demonstrations that talk about intifada or you know uh, threatening people's lives and and so that's the hypocrisy that people are are building on and so they didn't respond in an appropriate way which is really unfortunate for the schools they're losing billions of dollars of donations and now they are in absolutely a clarion call situation yeah well gosh spencer i'm looking i'm up against it here we've <laughs> been too. going for an hour in this conversation i love this conversation uh but i gotta wrap it up uh, so did, did I, we give the did we give what what they need to do in that in that crisis clarion call situation you need to mobilize the troops and you need to come up with multiple strategies and don't retreat into isolation. Stay aware of different agendas of the team. Stay on top of that. But uh, that's where you want to have your all hands on deck and uh, utilize all the brain power that you have. So that's all I have to say about those, those four areas and how you best respond. Yeah, and the only thing that I would add to that is assuming that your, your values and principles are correct, you know, yes. um, stick to your principles and don't don't deviate from from your core values uh because you can address a situation by still staying true to great, your values great and advice. principles and i'm not necessarily saying that from a moral perspective although it, you know from a personal perspective it is certainly that way but i mean all of our organizations have mission, vision, value statements. And, and that's actually the question that Congress was asking those presidents. Is your behavior in alignment with your stated values? That's really interesting that you brought that up. And that yeah. was the challenge that, that that's hurt them. Yeah. So stick to your principles. So, uh, Spencer, this has been an illuminating, fascinating conversation. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time. And you've helped so many organizations over decades if people want to learn more about how you could help them to implement this reactive uh, framework or to build these high-performing teams so that they can be one of the 12% of high-performing teams, you know, what's the best way for them to connect with you? So connect with me and let's increase that 12% to, you know, at least 20%. And uh, just reach out to me on LinkedIn, please. Spencer Horn and Christian, I always, every time I... I'm, I'm anywhere around the country. I talk about you and I introduce people to you and they just absolutely love and admire you and the work that you do and how you help organizations. How can people find you? Same LinkedIn. Just look for Christian Napier on LinkedIn. Happy to connect with anyone. So it's been a fascinating hour of conversation for me, Spencer listeners, viewers. Uh, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to join us today. Please like and subscribe our podcast and we'll catch you again soon.